Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host and Glossy senior reporter, Hilary Milnes, and with me this week is the New York-based designer, Daniela Kallmeyer. Thanks for joining us, Danielle. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to get a little bit of background on your brand. You're you're based here. Your, your office is actually not too far away from ours in Soho, uh, but, but tell us what what inspired you to start the brand and when did you actually what were you doing when you decided to actually pull the trigger and do it well if i go all the way back i grew up doing theater and i was actually a competitive figure skater so costume was very much a part of my life mm-hmm. um and i was an artist from a young child and so having these moments of of touching fabric and feeling fabric and was was very influential and in addition to that i had um female figures in my life, my mother, my grandmother, who were very glamorous and who, to whom fashion and the way that you presented yourself to the world was very important. And so I found myself being really in love with fashion. And uh, when I was very young and I was still in high school, I spent a lot of time here in New York, actually uh, going to the Martha Graham Institute and um, doing, you know, theater uh, summer intensives, and I found myself getting a internship at Luca Luca, and that was sort of my first intro into ready to wear clothing as opposed to costume fashion. And, and how old were you then? Uh, maybe 15, 16 years old. That's an early start. That makes me feel bad about when I got my first internship. <laughs> well, don't don't feel bad. I mean, I sort of marched in there really naive and um, headstrong and handed Luca my my sketchbook and I said, you hold on to this until Monday and let me know if I have an, an internship. And they, they at the time, you know, um, they were based in, on the Upper East Side and they didn't really have interns. Everything was done in-house and you know, they had clients who came into their atelier and I think it was like a changing moment for me and they grew into an amazing and successful business. They're not around anymore, but you know, I'm sure we'll get to that, how the <laughs> fashion world has changed so yes. quickly. Yeah. So, and then, and then so fast forward to, to starting your own brand. How long has it been around now? Um, it's been around about six years now. I, I journeyed, journeyed, um, across the world and back basically between then and now. Um, I started at Syracuse University uh, thinking that I'd be able to hold on to that theater background and do a double degree in fashion design and costume design. But having been part of that experience with Luca and in the um, New York fashion industry, I, I realized that you really have to be in it to understand it and it's more about it's more than just about sketching in a classroom and and delivering projects. It's really about being part of the real business. And mm-hmm. so I transferred out and I moved to London. The summer before I left for London, I got an internship at Proenza when they were still a young brand over on Walker Street. Mm-hmm. And you know, one thing led to to another. Everything connects. So when I was in London, um, you know, having had Proenza on my resume, that helped me get my um, 
internship at Alexander McQueen. So wow, great network of, in, of uh, internships. And when when you were starting the business, how do you decide how to? Was we write a lot about how the creative side of fashion, the, the designer and and the CEO, the business side, how those relationships work. And so, when you were thinking about starting the brand, how did you sort of make sure that okay, I have a, I have a business plan in place too? You mentioned it; it's not just about sketching in a room. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I will give a lot of advice now that I didn't listen to when I first started, and um, you know that includes get lots of experience, don't start this alone, write a business plan. But on the other hand, things change so quickly. You could spend a year writing a business plan and everything will change by then. So, you know, I started it out of passion. I remember um, I had one job after the next and I was freelancing. I had worked for McQueen. I had been there in the beginning when when we launched McHugh. I came back here and worked for some really amazing uh, New York-based designers as well as working for some private label and seeing how it works on the other more commercial end of it. And I went to some of my um, most trusted advisors and mentors and and also my mom and my my family. And I said, you know, when will I know that it's time? I really believe that I have something that's not what's out there, that I have my own point of view. And my mom eventually turned around to me and she said, I think it's time. Now, was it time? Probably not. I didn't have (laughs) a whole lot of money saved up. I didn't have a proper business plan. I didn't have, um, you know, investors. But now, you know, you see so many successful um, companies coming out of nowhere and it's out of, it's out of passion. Um, Mm. So I don't know that there's a right a wrong answer to how much business and how much creative Mm -hmm. because um, I think both will sort of show their show their way when it's time Mm -hmm. the pieces kind of fall into place yeah so what does it look like today then what's what's your team like Um, we're still very small I mean we're two sometimes three people in the office and you know I really I rely on on a network that is not only my advisors, but often my my customers and my clients um, to help me grow my business because they're as much a part of my process as the people who are photographing the work and updating my website and designing and managing production and all of those things, you know, that are part of the back end. But, you know, I consider... M- my customers and the experience that I provide to them just as much a part of my creative process. Mm -hmm. That makes sense, especially for such a small team. Uh, But so going back to, to the early days of your, of your internship career and and the brands that you spent time with, do you think that looking at how they got their start and then looking at how you got their, your start versus designers today, how has that process changed? Do you think you went the traditional route or is there even still a traditional route? Um, there's definitely not a traditional route anymore. Uh-huh. That I can say definitively. Everything else I cannot say definitively <laughs> because I just don't think that there's a proper way anymore. You know, even when I started, which was about six years ago, it was all about the brand, the brand, the brand. Everything has to be on brand and from the logo you use to the typeface you use to the imagery. And yes, the imagery 
and the way that you represent yourself and the way that you represent your brand is still very much important. But then you're starting to talk about sort of advertising and marketing concepts. Mm -hmm. And it's more than just your brand and your brand vision. Um, and, and so I, I don't know that there's a, a proper way to do things. You listen to people like Diane von Furstenberg and Donna Karen and amazing women like that who got their start in a way that maybe most likely wouldn't work for them now. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're kind of like, oh, well, well that, that would have been nice. Do you think it's easier or harder? Um, the barriers of entry have changed. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they're easier or that they're harder. I think if you are a designer, um, in a lot of ways, it's harder because you can't just create a product, put it out there, and that's enough. Um, but at the same time, it's easier because of social media and the internet and accessibility to things like Squarespace and Shopify, and anyone can have just one product and turn that into a brand. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, you know, we get attached to this idea of brand or we get attached to this idea of, well, this is working, so this is my path to success. And you could just as easily be successful with just one product while someone who has built up a an amazing brand with a great identity struggles to find, you know, their path once their customer changes with the times. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of if you find that one product that sticks, you're almost better off than if you have a full cohesive collection. Now I would definitely say that's the case. I mean, I my girlfriend and I often say we think that the idea of a brand is either going to not exist or will change entirely. You know, people aren't searching for what one designer is doing for their entire collection anymore. Mm -hmm. They're looking for an off the shoulder shirt. Mm -hmm. They're looking for their favorite, you know, sustainable detergent, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's where internet search history comes into play. And you, you could have amazing success with, with one piece, but that might not be in fashion two seasons from now, three seasons from now. Mm -hmm. And and then what do you do? Right. Yeah. Are you, is there a way to prepare for that? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I wish I had a, a more glamorous, well thought out answer, but uh, no, I, I don't think that there is. I think, um, you know, there, I had an amazing advisor once who I asked, was your success more luck or more strategy? And she said, it's a combination of both. Mm -hmm. You have to be prepared for when you're lucky to get strategic and you have to be strategic about finding your own luck. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the only way you can really be prepared. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah, that's, you're like, you're kind of like, well, that's a non-answer. So thanks. <laughs> uh, so 2011, when you guys started about, uh, what, how did you decide where you wanted to sell? Because it wasn't that long ago, but it, it feels like today the number of brands that start direct to consumer are way more than, than it was six years ago. Uh, do you think that, well, first let's start with how you decided to sell your brand from the beginning. Well, I like most young designers took the easiest point of entry, which is make clothes, show them to buyers. Mm -hmm. Um, I think as far as a plan and a path that was driven so much more by the aesthetic 
of the brand and my consideration for who my customer was, um, but not so much how my customer thinks and finds and shops and what her behaviors are and her those patterns and um, what is best for the brand that I'm trying to build and create. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes I think that my big regret was not going direct to consumer from the start, mm-hmm. given the fact that that is in many ways what makes sense. Um, I was out in the market. I saw this big gap between designer brands and contemporary brands and high street brands and felt that there was something in between. There was a great area. Um, but because of that gray area, that gray area not only existed from the product and the design standpoint, but it existed in the market as well. So when you talk about placement and you speak to buyers and they say, well, where do you, where do you want us to put you? Then you're starting to talk about price point and aesthetic and customer lifestyle and mm. all of that. And when you have a direct-to-consumer brand, you can guide that. You can create that world for the customer so that when she feels that same sense of gray area that I felt as both a consumer and as a designer, she can find this place that feels like you know, the home that she's been looking for, the place that she's been looking for that she wasn't finding you know, dragging her feet through department stores mm-hmm. or going from one cool boutique to the next where she doesn't feel very cool. Mm-hmm. And I think that brand adjacency comes up a lot, uh, to, especially today when there's you're looking at the boutiques versus the department stores versus the e-commerce sites. Um, was was that a concern at the beginning uh, in terms of you meant like if, if you were looking for this gray space in the market, uh, but you're, you still have to fit in somewhere, how do you get that message across to the customer that says, oh, I'm actually offering something different? Well, and that's what's sort of so interesting about where we're at now with your ability to speak directly to the customer because that's the answer to that. But as far as adjacencies, you know, m- my problem at least, and, I, and I'm sure that I can speak for a lot of young designers, especially young designers who are trying to enter into the contemporary, advanced contemporary and sort of like emerging designer space Mm -hmm. is what happens is you're looking at the designer and luxury brands for um, guidance, for inspiration, for a marker in trends and market. But then you're trying to price out sort of somewhere in between that and lower price point. But the problem with that is that there's a reason why those price points differ and not only because of quality. Mm -hmm. It's also because of the lifestyle of the customer. Mm -hmm. Um, So brand adjacencies in some ways are important because it gives people a sense of perspective. But at the same time, there's there's so much crossover now that, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I I'm gonna keep going back to the idea of of direct to consumer mm-hmm. because that that's sort of the only way to answer it. You know, there's so much crossover. You can find a bag for three hundred and twenty dollars, uh, and you can find a piece for three hundred and twenty dollars from two different brands that that have two different adjacencies. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it's sort of where you start and stop. Mm -hmm. And in your conversations working with buyers, uh, do you think that they're adapting with this at the same rate as, as, as brands are and as customers are? And did that differ, especially like on the department store level? The easy answer is probably no. I don't think that they're adjusting. I think that they're adjusting more to where we're at with technology, where we're at with the fact that so many uh, of their consumers at least are being uh, influenced by trends in Instagram and Pinterest and that kind of thing. I think that they are adjusting to people's wallets, people's priorities, but I don't know that there's been a huge adjustment as far as finding that space and filling it because then you still you still want to sell an aspiration, right? Mm-hmm. So you have contemporary brands on the contemporary floor that are selling at a contemporary price point that are still trend-driven and fantastical and fun and flirty and all of those words, <laughs> fashion <laughs> words. Yes. Um, and then you have the designer level, which is maybe either a bit more serious or a woman who really invests in fashion all the time. And they're two different customers a lot of the time. And then somehow they all kind of share a Zara customer. Right. Of course. Uh, but do you think a, a designer in your position has more um, power or leverage over the buyers today than, than in the past? No, I think that I think that buyers, despite the fact that stores have a they're in a different place than they were i mean you see like colette we never thought we'd see colette closing mm-hmm. um you know nobody knows what's happening with stores like barney's and then on the other hand you have farfetch which is just like sort of taking over i don't i think that there's still a lot of influence with the edit i think that um, there's still a lot of influence that the buyer has and controls over the designer if that's the path that the designer chooses to go through wholesale. You know, if you're still in the hands of the buyer in the store, mm-hmm. if you are trying to sell to their customer because they know their customer, they are trying to shape and edit and curate something that's different from the store that's next to them or that that they're competing with. Um, so you you have to control your own market and your own customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and so, it, but you sell online now. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that? All those logistics, the back end, uh, managing the customer relationship that way. Um, is that a is that a big task? But it, it, is it kind of one of those things where it's like, well, you you just have to today. Well, managing the customer relationship is sort of the best part of doing all of that. Mm-hmm. I think the back end and the logistics are where it gets a little bit tricky because we've actually seen a decent amount of success through our e-commerce and through direct. And that's really without any um, marketing or any serious outreach. Um, I keep waiting for that moment where I'm, I tell myself that we're ready mm-hmm. for that, for that big push. And yet we're, we're operating, um, you know, this small team, like we are presenting ourselves as a big, as a big e-commerce shop. Mm-hmm. Um, the logistics are tricky. You need to know how much merchandise you're buying for yourself. Um, it needs to be stored well. We have a studio uh, that we invite people to come and shop 
in because like I said, the customer experience is a big part of our brand. And so we have a lot of customers who come and shop. And so remembering to update that inventory so that someone doesn't buy something the next day that we sold yesterday, right. you know, those <laughs> things are really important and tricky and those nerve wracking. And, and the worst part about it is most of it is in the back of my head. Uh-huh. So I think just creating sort of systems and sticking to it and making rules and following your own rules is something that you can apply to any part of your business. And Mm -hmm. and that includes, and especially when it comes to creating an optimal service online. Mm -hmm. And it seems like designers today just have to do so much more than they used to. Do you think it's it's harder in that sense? Um, I think it's harder and I think it's easier. You know, it goes back to the idea of how much, how attached are you to the idea of brand? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because if it's all about your brand, then you're going to spend weeks or even months perfecting your website. And then you see, um, you know, I'm going to say kids and I don't mean that in a patronizing way, but I, you see millennials and you see young designers or young brand brand owners or business owners who are just putting things out there because things are so immediate. Nobody is judging you for how similar this piece is from the last piece you put out. They just want to know if they want it or not and mm-hmm. if they can afford it or you know if it's what they need and if it's what they want or if it's what the cool kids right. have. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think it goes back to the fact that the customer is in control more than ever. Uh, and, and having had experience at more traditional fashion brands, do you think that's uh, something that the industry is still trying to get used to? Definitely. <laughs> I mean, definitely still trying to get used to it. Even as a young brand, I find myself sort of being stuck with nostalgia of mm-hmm. how things used to work and how things used to be. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get out of that that mind frame. And um it's tricky. I think it changes every single day. I, I don't really know the, the answer to that, but yes, the customer is definitely more in control. And it, with that in mind, I think it's important to utilize your resources to reach out to them. Mm-hmm. In my case, that means doing more trunk shows, inviting people into our studio, engaging with them. You know, we we launched this initiative called The Calling where we're helping to support female stories and female projects. And, um, you know, that means going out into markets that are not the typical fashion Instagram scene mm-hmm. and saying to those women, you know, what's your lifestyle? What are you looking for? What's missing in your closet? I mean, it's almost like being a wardrobe stylist. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, every season we're trying to help these women perfect their wardrobes, perfect their closets so that they have time to think about the things that matter to them, like politics and like, you know, global issues Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, getting ahead in their careers. Right. And I think that adds almost another layer of complication for a brand and a designer um, it's not only that that power has shifted, it's also that it's kind of a little bit different to just be like, you can't just straight hard sell anymore. You have to be a little bit more than that. Uh, so has that, has that been an, like, not an adjustment because it, you're still a young brand, but has that been something you've been thinking about since the beginning? No, I, I don't think I was thinking about it from the beginning, but 
there's this great quote that somebody just shared that one of the great paradoxes of life is that self-awareness breeds anxiety. And um, that I have found in the last couple of years of Mm -hmm. running this business has been sort of a game changer, you know, being very aware of what's going on in the world Mm -hmm. and how damaging fashion can be and what are the different ways that we can be more sustainable. And even with those things that we are trying to do to adjust and shift our business, you know, how can we be more sustainable? You know, my idea of sustainability is really make it better so that people can buy less and wear it longer. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not everybody's idea of sustainability. Right. Uh, And and speaking of just that, that element of, okay, you're a fashion brand, but you have to be aware of consumption and, and, and how customers now think about that and s- trying to slow down uh, fast fashion. Who is your customer? Is that something that they have expressed is important to them? And, and how do you share that message? Uh, it seems like designers today also have to balance acknowledging this um, shift in consumer values without just looking like they're pandering to them. So I, I don't in any way feel like I'm pandering to the customer. If anyway, if, if, if anything, I'm finding myself putting myself in her shoes. Um, she's a woman who's, you know, in her mid to late twenties and up, you know, upwards of 40, 50, 60. Um, and she has a real life. She has a career or she has children or she has both. And it's, asking myself and asking her, well, what do you need in that life? You know, if you live in the city, you might leave for work at 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. You need to look great. You need to look presentable, especially in a city like New York, but really anywhere you can find yourself in a situation where, you know, you never know what could happen. You never know who you could bump into that might change your life or who you need to network with. But at the same time, you're going from there to a business meeting to drinks with your girlfriend to a first date. And that same wardrobe has to take you from all those moments all in one day into the weddings that you have to go to the cocktail parties that you have to go to. And so I ask myself that every single day, can this top be worn to a wedding just as much as it can be worn with a pair of jeans and, and sneakers. So it's exciting to put myself in the shoes of, of, the customer, you know, it's exciting to ask myself, where is she in her life that she needs a wardrobe that isn't Zara, but isn't necessarily breaking every paycheck to, you know, shop her full wardrobe. Maybe some of it is, but shop her full wardrobe at, um, you know, luxury designers. And, and that's exciting. That's exciting to speak to them, to be, be them, to, mm-hmm. um, be around them and, and, try to figure out what inspires them and how they want to present themselves to the world, you know? Mm -hmm. And in terms of where you guys are now as a brand, what would you say is your next, what do you think is the next milestone for you in terms of, in terms of success as a, as a designer brand? Well, you hear a lot of people talking about experience and, um, you know, that's obviously because people are still struggling with the idea of, is it a is stores what's going to take you to the next level? Is online what's going to take you to the next level? Fashion is not like um, 
like beauty products or like lifestyle Mm -hmm. objects. You still need to touch it. You still need to feel right in it. You still need to feel like yourself in it. And until there's like brand loyalty, um, and even still when there is brand loyalty, everything looks different. Everything makes somebody feel different. And that's you know, going back that that's part of why there still can be so many different brands. That's why there can be so many different marketplaces and so many different price points because everybody wants to feel like themselves. And whether feeling like themselves is, is feeling like, um, you know, a magical fashion Instagram creature or feeling like a comfortable boss, they want to feel like themselves. So, you know, you talk about brand experience and and creating a a bring it to life sort of moment for your customers. I think you know maybe that's our next move. We found a lot of success in this these in person connections to our customer, whether it's in studio or at trunk shows or traveling. Um, we've found success through stores but we see our biggest growth when we have that one-to-one direct line of communication with the customers. And so creating that world for her where she feels empowered and feels like she's getting Mm -hmm. something interesting but familiar is exciting to me, but also exciting to me because of my background in theater and my, you know, my background Mm -hmm. in brand development. So you know, maybe that's our next move. We've we've been playing with the idea a lot. You know, I keep my eyes open for pop up spaces all the time. Right. Well, that's the new model, and I'm sure there's plenty in Soho. But uh, going into when you were starting the brand, was that something that you was a store on always on your radar? Or was there a time where you were like, oh, that we don't need the store? Sure. When when I was speaking to investors early on, and you know, when people would ask that question, I. I think we answered that stores would be in the future, but that was also because that was what was assumed to be success. Mm -hmm. You know, you open a store in New York, a store in California, a store in London, a store in Paris, and all of a sudden you've got yourself a fashion empire. Well, you know, not only has the ability to create that world for yourself as a fashion brand, as a, as a young brand changed, but the need and the desire for it has also changed. And, um, you know, now to me, if I could create one destination place that just brings to life who my customer is, who our brand is, who we are, who we want to collaborate with, who we want to support, you know, one destination place is in some ways all you really need. Um, because people are not going to stop shopping online, but they're still going to want to find a place where they can discover you, where they can touch the clothes, where they can put them on, all in an environment that feels unique. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a store, but it's almost a little bit of a different concept. Uh, that'll be really interesting to see. Uh, great. We're just about out of time, but thank you so much, Daniela, for coming in and joining us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Of course. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. And in the meantime, be sure to subscribe on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play and leave us any feedback you have.